Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're, we've come to meet with you. And Lord, as I've asked you for the last couple of days, I pray that you would speak clearly as we read this record we've been given of your life, of a shocking encounter at a dinner and what you taught there, who you showed yourself again to be. Help us to respond accordingly and remember that this is no ritual. It's not a self-improvement program. You offer yourself and you offer a relationship with the living God who is, who loves, who forgives, who is faithful, who is just and holy. So help us to know you, hear from you, do as you say, and most of all, to love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Super energetic this morning, right, everybody? Extra hour of sleep, well-rested. Kids were in fine shape this morning when you invited them to get up, right? Right? That's the way it went, right? This is the dialogue portion, folks. Feel free to participate. How are you feeling? Excellent. Prayed for you all week. I missed you last weekend. Just a, the, the briefest of reports about that. My, uh, my parents have been missionaries in Mexico since 1971. They took me there when I was tiny. And I don't think, you know, their, their desire would be to live out the rest of their lives uh, right where they are in northern Mexico. Every year they have an evangelistic conference, and they invite me pretty often. I'm not always able to accept the invitation. This year I was, and they celebrated uh, three nights of preaching. I preached on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, and then a 35th church anniversary. Their last, the last church they started began 35 years ago. And from Wednesday to Friday, it was amazing to see this church and how Everybody made a tremendous effort to bring their friends to church, and 19 of those people trusted Jesus as their Savior before the week was over. And, of course, like most families, my family shows food through love, and friends show food through love, and I, it's not really up to debate. Mexican food is simply the best thing in the world, right? So... I was in the actual heartland where you don't have to ask, is this authentic? It's authentic. <laughs> and six days alternating between the greatest Mexican food in town and my mother's cooking. Yeah. <laughs> the scale groaned a little bit extra when I got on, but I'm back on track, well-rested, and ready to tell you about Jesus. Ready for that? We are in Luke chapter 7 as we continue to walk with Jesus through his life as faithfully recorded by the physician Luke. Luke was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, but he was a close friend to those who were. And he made a careful investigation, he tells us, about Jesus' life, and today he tells us about an incredibly awkward dinner. You know what awkward dinners are like. How many of you legitimately, I'm going to ask this in a positive way, how many of you legitimately enjoy having new people over to your home? Okay, there's a few hospitable people. The rest of you were honest and said, I don't want any part of that. 
Hospitality is a gift. It's one of the best things we can offer to another person, but frankly, it's not for everybody. Not everybody enjoys it. And hospitality comes with all kinds of social obligations, things really on both sides that you're expected to do. When we step back into the Gospel of Luke, we're stepping back 2,000 years into history, but it's no different. There are different social obligations there, and when they're violated, you can feel the awkwardness in the room. Reminded of a story of a Christian family who invited another family over, and they were proud of their son like so many parents are, and apparently this little kid could pray a little bit. So mom said, Billy, you pray beautifully. Would you say grace over the meal? And like kids do, right? They're kids, not performing seals. And he kind of deferred and demurred and looked shyly into the tablecloth. And she pressured him because that's what prayer is about, right? Showing off uh, for, your, for your guests. And she said, honey, you pray so beautifully. You've prayed with me. You've heard me pray many times. I was praying earlier in the kitchen with you. Remember, just pray like that. And he said, okay. Oh, why did I invite all these people over? (laughs) Well, it can be a little bit like that. It can be just a little bit like that. And in Luke chapter 7, we're taken into a dinner. Luke 7, verse 36, telling us about Jesus, Luke says, one of the Pharisees asked him, meaning Jesus, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Every detail matters in Scripture. God is a perfect author, and in biblical stories, when it's giving you details, that's the narrator trying to help you see something. Number one Bible reading tip, slow down. They're reclining at a table because they weren't pulling up chairs. They were leaning in at a low table with their feet not beneath them but behind them. And there wasn't the concept of closed doors and extreme privacy that we have here in the West. We're not told the exact occasion, but since this is a Pharisee and he invited Jesus into his home, it's likely a Sabbath meal. Perhaps Jesus taught at the synagogue as a well-respected teacher of the Hebrew Scriptures, and now the Pharisee, this super strict, super observant group of Orthodox Jews in Israel who took the law so seriously and piled on top of it their own traditions, he has asked Jesus to come over for a meal. But it's it's not a public event, but it's not closed either. It wouldn't be uncommon. In fact, it might be expected for people to come by and to the host, whose name is Simon, to his chagrin, the wrong kind of person came by. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, Luke tells you something about her reputation. He doesn't mean in the theological sense that the Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true. That's the most devastating, fatal fact in the universe that every human being, including you, beginning with me, we have all sinned. Luke, in the keeping with his time, says she was a sinner. In other words, she has a notorious reputation. We're not told her name. We're not told how she earned this reputation. 
It would only be that. It would only be speculation if we tried to imagine. But whatever her life has been, it has been so immoral, so indecent, so shocking that she is a known woman. You may remember from literature class, the Scarlet Letter. She's been branded. People know who she is. People know what she's done. She comes in, knowing that Jesus is nearby, she comes into the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, remember, he's leaning in with his feet behind him, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, because this is 2,000 years ago, this may sound very natural to you, let me assure you, it's not. If you're invited to this table and this suddenly starts happening, happening in this dignified, formal, frankly, religious gathering, a woman uninvited comes in and starts weeping so loudly that along with the ointment she has brought, that she is pouring it out onto Jesus' feet, she starts crying and dripping tears on his feet. Then did you notice what she did next? She wiped his feet with her hair. Does that look a little degrading to you? Does it look a little humbling? It was. In this culture, the fact that her hair is down itself is shocking. There is nothing appropriate about this scene. And it freezes everybody at the table, I'm sure, except Jesus. And the Pharisee, this highly religious man, is going to have a harsh judgmental reaction. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, notice, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, now a prophet is someone who speaks from God to people. The reputation, the fame that has spread around Jesus is that a prophet has arisen in Israel because he speaks like no one ever has and does things that only God can do. He raises the dead, he deals with disease, he deals with demons and every kind of ailment, and the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, you could almost hear the hiss this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Hear the judgment? It's attitudes like this that make Pharisee kind of an insult in modern times. This man doesn't speak for God at all. If he really did speak for God, he would know who this is, he would know what sort of woman this is, and certainly you can almost hear him gathering his robes around himself. He would not allow such a person to touch him. And Jesus answering, now again, slow down. Did Simon say his little criticism out loud? He said it to himself, and then Luke says Jesus did what? He answered. He's not intuitive. He knows exactly what's happening in this man's mind. This is another flash of deity that the man sitting at the table is absolutely a human being, but he is more than a human being. He is God himself who knows the heart. In the Gospel of John, one of the quiet little passages that tells me about Jesus and that sets him apart, so far apart from the rest of us, 
John says that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in people. Jesus loved people, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what we are capable of. Even Judas, Judas, who betrayed him, did not surprise Jesus. Knew, Jesus knew from the beginning and even told Judas that Jesus knew exactly what Judas was going to do. He knows the human heart. Here the human heart in Simon speaks in judgment, in condemnation, in self-righteousness. And Luke says Jesus answers him. What a moment that must have been for Simon. He's keeping the counsel of his own self-righteous heart, and Jesus addresses him directly. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And I say, "Uh uh-oh. And he answered, say it, teacher. And there's there's the respect from the lips out that's not in the heart. You're a teacher. I don't think you're a very good teacher. I certainly don't think you speak for God, but we'll continue the ruse. Say on, teacher. Jesus tells him a little story, as Jesus is so fond of doing, because stories communicate so well. Here it is. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. If your Bible translation is literal like mine, what that's telling you is there are two different debts. A denarii or a denarius is a day's wages. So one man owes about two months worth of wages. The other man owes well over a year's worth of wages. Both substantial debts. And that's why it says in verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you like to get a break like that just one time in your life? For Visa to call and say, you know what? Never mind. We've cleared your account. Or for the person who holds the mortgage or the landlord who is owed the rent to say, ah, you know what? I just live in the place. It's fine. That'd be great. Well, in Jesus' simple story, that's what happened to two men. And he asked an important question. Now, which of them, of these two debtors, which of them will love him more? Now, before you keep reading, take Jesus' question yourself. A man has been forgiven two months' worth of his earnings, and another man has been forgiven maybe up to about a year and a half of his earnings. Who's going to love love that man more? The one with the greater debt, right? That seems obvious. Somebody buys you lunch, you're grateful. Somebody pays off your house, you rename your children in his honor, right? (laughs) Great debt, great love, and Simon sees it just like you did. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt, and Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he looks over his shoulder. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? And he does. And that's the problem. He does see the woman, and he hates the fact that she's there. He does see the woman, and it makes him terribly uncomfortable. He does see the woman, and he hates the societal norm that keeps the doors open. 
Jesus has a different perspective. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus is going through the list of social obligations and kindnesses that a first century host would offer. And you can see the contempt that Simon quietly has for Jesus because he didn't offer him water to wash his feet. Remember the famous story of the Last Supper? Jesus is celebrating the Jewish Passover with his disciples shortly before he's killed on the cross. But they were in a borrowed room, so they walked in, and there was a wash basin and a towel there. Everything was made ready for the foot washing, but there was a problem. There was no servant there to do it. So what did 12 disciples do? They just marched right on and said, I guess we'll, I guess we'll be dirty instead. Every man made this quiet calculation. I'm not washing his feet. So Jesus, at a crucial moment in the supper, stands up, puts on the attire of a slave, and quietly goes to work washing his disciples' feet to teach them something about love, how he loves them and how are they to love one another. Simon has denied Jesus this basic courtesy. He hasn't kissed him hello either. And again, in our culture now, That seems a little strange, but I would bet probably the majority of the world's population, people kiss hello. It's normal. Simon has not done that. This would be like having somebody over to your house and not shaking their hand. What do we do when we invite somebody over? How do we greet them when they come in? It's not even a handshake, is it? It's a little hug, and if we just met them, it's a handshake on the way in, then we share a meal, and it's a hug on the way out the door because we've shared the table and we're a little bit closer now. Simon has done none of that. He hasn't offered oil for Jesus' head either, another custom of the day to show kindness in this dusty, hot climate. And the woman has done all of it. Jesus says, She has wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. She has not ceased to kiss my feet. She has anointed my feet with ointment. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, in other words, I know exactly who this is. I know what her reputation is. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And now the quiet little flash of deity that Jesus displayed by speaking directly to Simon's thoughts, now it's on full display. Jesus is making a bold claim to be God himself who can speak to strangers and forgive their sins. And here's what Luke wants us to know from this day in Jesus' life. Great forgiveness leads to great love. It's as simple as that. Great forgiveness leads to great love. You see, friends, people who value what they have received from Jesus will refuse him nothing. This is at the heart of the story. This woman is one of these people who is drawn near to Jesus, having been rejected by the religious establishment, 
knowing full well that their own righteousness will never be enough to please God, and they hear that Jesus is the kind of person who does not stand aloof and does not stand in judgment of them, but welcomes notorious, sinful, guilt-ridden, shame-filled people, and he welcomes them and he forgives them. And people who are loved that way and forgiven that much love Jesus a great deal in return. Now, a few months ago, Pastor Matt, you may remember, this summer dealt with this same passage. And for that reason, I almost skipped it. But then I thought to skip it would keep me from dealing directly with the passage that God has been using on me. Because when I'm paying attention to God, what you should know about these passages that I share with you, before I ever speak a word to you, God has had it out with me before I talk to you about it. And this is really what it comes down to. The heart of the question is, will those who have been greatly forgiven by Jesus love Jesus greatly in return? It's a personal relationship. It's something that is between us. It's something that He has given to us to say to anyone who will trust Him as Savior these kinds of wonderful words. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What did this woman do? She simply placed her trust in Jesus that he was the kind of person who had the authority and the love to forgive her. And for that simple trust, she received her entire forgiveness. And Jesus is going to the heart of Simon's problem. Simon doesn't love Jesus, doesn't respect Jesus. It can't, he can't contain his contempt for Jesus. It bleeds out by refusing Jesus even the smallest of social courtesies. And what is lacking is not a sense of propriety. What is lacking is not a sense of decency. What is lacking is love. And when I say that the Lord Jesus has been dealing with me about this, let me tell you a little bit about my story and why this is incisive for me. Because I was raised in a missionary's home, I heard the story of the love of God expressed through His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in my place and died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave as, as prophesied and as promised by Jesus himself. And he did all that, I was told, from the time I could make sense of language. He did that for love so that my sins would not separate me from the God who made me, who is holy unapproachable imperfection, perfect injustice, and I'm nothing like that. At my best, I'm a sinner. At my best. At my worst, I'm a scandalous, notorious sinner. And when I was only a little boy, I remember the night very well. God made all of those Bible stories and all of that truth about who He is become very, very real to me. And I felt conviction. In other words, I felt the weight of all that, and I actually got my parents out of bed and told them about it. But even as a little boy, I was so self-willed and so stubborn, I actually sent them back to bed twice 
Because when it came time to make this wonderful transfer to tell Jesus, I've sinned, I need you to save me, twice I broke off the prayer as a little kid and said, I'm a pretty good kid, nothing to be sorry for, go back to bed. <laughs> Terrified my mother. She said, many times I've never seen a child so young fight God so hard. And she had a good point. See, in my heart of hearts, I'm self-willed literally unto death. And God was dealing with me about my need for his forgiveness. And when I finally broke on the third occasion, and I finally asked Jesus to save me, I felt something so spectacular that I had to read Pilgrim's Progress years later to understand it. If you've seen that famous book or seen a cartoon or a movie about it, it's a long parable of the Christian life, and in it, Pilgrim has a great burden strapped to his back. But he struggles up a hill, and there he comes to the cross, and in that moment, he feels the burden which is crushing him beneath its weight, separated from his back, roll down the hill, fall into a grave never to be seen again. And I, when I read that, I understood the emotions I experienced that night. I felt such relief, I felt such peace that with the lack of embarrassment of a little boy, I remember jumping up on the bed over and over again, shouting, I'm saved, I'm saved. Now here's the problem. That love grows cold. That love becomes familiar. You get used to it. You forget how much you were forgiven. It becomes entirely too familiar. Instead of being the kind of love that moves you to tearful obedience, to enormous gratitude, to great sacrifices, not to repay Jesus, but to show him that you understand and that you love him, it becomes all too customary and your love grows cold. And that's why of the many things that Jesus did, this is in Scripture so that we will learn that people who are greatly forgiven should be people who love Jesus greatly in return. And the people who have received all of this from Jesus will refuse him no love, no loyalty, no kindness, no generosity. He can have it all simply because we love him. See, everybody's in this story somewhere. And you sit either closer to Simon, the self-righteous Pharisee, or you sit closer to the weeping woman who is wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. The point of the story is this, those who are greatly forgiven are those who will love Jesus greatly in return. But as I've considered where I fit in the story, and find to my surprise as a disciple of Jesus for many years, as a pastor, that my love for him sometimes grows cold and familiar, I've asked myself, based on the example of this woman, a very important question. And I put this sometimes in the margin of my Bible. The acronym is YBH. Somebody taught me to write that sometime. Whenever I see an example in Scripture that is worth imitating, or I'm told directly something to do in Scripture, like it says elsewhere, to keep love at full strength. YBH is a reminder in the margin of my Bible that says, yes, okay, I get that, I see that, I understand the point, but how do I do that? 
See, if you're only an admirer of Jesus, if you hear his word but don't put it into practice, it'll do you no good. The Bible itself says that much. It says don't be a hearer of the word only, but also be a, what? A doer of it. Because if you only hear it and never do it, you only deceive yourself. You don't fool God. You don't even fool others. You're only tricking yourself thinking that hearing from Jesus has done you some good. So as I close, let me tell you some simple hows from this story that tells us that great forgiveness leads to great love. First of all, in your own walk with Jesus, remember this is a personal relationship. God is not a body of content to be mastered. God is wisdom and knowledge itself, but he's not a textbook. He's a person who acted in history by giving you the person of his son, Jesus Christ. See, the reason we keep referring back to this authoritative record of God's word is it is actual history. This happened. Archaeologists in Israel sometimes find the very places, the very houses, the very locales. They go to the very ruins where Jesus taught, where Jesus enjoyed meals. We don't know where this location is, but Jesus was really in a house owned by a self-righteous Pharisee and their polite but poisoned little meal, their socially poisoned little meal, which was filled with awkwardness, was interrupted by the only person in the room who really understood who Jesus was because she knew she had great need of him, and she made it personal. She welcomed his love, she showed, her, she showed him her love in return for him, and that's what I need to keep track of. When I deal with God, it's personal. See, if you make your relationship with God, your hearing from him in his word, your speaking to him in prayer, your attendance to his house, which is the body of Christ, the church, something based on your convenience, your commitment, What's good for you, what will bless you, you think, and you forget that you're dealing with an actual person, your love will grow cold. If, on the other hand, you wake up in the morning and you draw that first breath and you realize that God has graciously given you another day and that he loves you so dearly that he sent his own son to the cross to die for your sins so that you could live with him now and someday enjoy him forever, and you remember that you're going out into the world he made, which has now been ruined by sin, but he knows all about it, and he goes ahead of you, and you do to do, you go to do his will and show his love and his character in the world, and you make it personal. You'll make every day walk with Jesus. You'll make a Tuesday afternoon a great spiritual adventure because you're in relationship with him. I mean, honestly, is there anything better than that? Do you know how celebrity crazed we are as a culture? That people will take awkward selfies with people to put it on their social media accounts because they happen to see some poor, hapless celebrity at a restaurant. So you got this action going. And that poor woman's just trying to enjoy a meal. Why would we ever do that? Because we're so impressed with human celebrity that we want people we barely know to know that we were in the same space with them, only three feet apart. Until security said that's close enough. And here you have the God of the universe, the creator of all things, 
who knows you by name and knows your sin and knows your guilt and knows your shame and knows your record and loves you anyway, inviting you into personal relationship with him to forgive you of all your sins. And you're going to let, as I have, that love for him grow cold? May it never be. Keep it personal. Secondly, think long and hard about the depth of your forgiveness. This is what was so natural for the woman. This is what she knew. Luke called her a sinner because she had that reputation. He's not trying to be mean. He's just telling you her social standing. She knows it. She appreciates. She loves. She relishes the fact that Jesus is the kind of person who welcomes sinners. She cannot take her eyes off the fact how much she has been forgiven. See, the thing is, when my love for Jesus grows cold, there's only one thing that's happening. I'm becoming self-righteous instead of being reminded of my Christ-righteousness. See, when people who know Jesus and admire Jesus and still claim Jesus but don't really, and it shows up in their actions, it shows in the way they act, it shows in the way they live, it shows in the way they give and serve others. Because when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said it was to love the Lord your God with everything you have, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second he said is like it, it is to love your neighbor like yourself. When I stop doing that, there's only one reason. I've forgotten his righteousness and I've started thinking about my own. And that's where the habitual Christianity comes in and kills the love. That's exactly where I go wrong. Paul the apostle, who was without a doubt the greatest of all the apostles, the greatest of all the people who were near Jesus, who Jesus sent out to preach, he was, no doubt about it, it's not even close, the most accomplished of them. But toward the end of his life, he wrote a letter to one of his young disciples, one of his young partners, and he said to Timothy, I am the worst of, you remember? I'm the worst of sinners. Why? Not because Paul was behaving that way, but because he never, ever forgot it. See, when Christianity, when walking with Jesus becomes habitual, you go from legitimate awe for him, where you think he's awesome, an overused word, because we say pizza's awesome. <laughs> awesome literally means that it is something that inspires awe. And when you come to Jesus and your forgiveness is fresh, you cannot believe that you are accepted. It's hard for you to believe that your sins have actually been forgiven. In dealing with people who have done terrible things and know it, dozens of times I've heard from both men and women, God could never forgive someone like me. That's where people who know their needs start, and when they finally receive it and they hear from Jesus, your faith has saved you, go in peace, they are in awe. And if you're not careful and you don't remember the past, if you don't remember the depth of your forgiveness, you'll start thinking that God got per something pretty neat in the bargain when he forgave you. And of course he forgave me. I mean, look at me. Too many times, a handful of times, some of the godliest people I've ever met upon hearing that notorious people have trusted Christ in prison, have said something like this, this is a direct quote 
from a woman who is, to this day, a great friend who came to her senses after saying this. She said, well, if he's in heaven, I don't want to be there. And see, very few people would say that out loud, but you can know that thought has crept into your heart when you're no longer amazed by your forgiveness. When his forgiveness becomes the most natural thing in the world, when it no longer moves you, when you can't believe with wonder that you're saved anymore, that's self-righteousness creeping in. And what that tells me is this, if I'm not very loving, it simply means that I've forgotten how much I've been forgiven. The reason I don't love God and the reason I don't love my wife, my children, you, strangers, the way I should, is because I have forgotten in that moment how much I've been forgiven. Finally, this woman teaches me this. I need to do loving things first without waiting for the feelings. See, this woman is so enthralled. She is so caught up with the kind of person Jesus is that she doesn't wait for the feeling. She doesn't mind the social stigma. She can hear the sucked-in gasp of air because of social shock. She can see the arched eyebrows, and she doesn't care a bit. But too many Christians being told to love God and being told to love their neighbor wait for their feelings to make them feel like loving God and loving their neighbor, and then they get on with loving. C.S. Lewis knew better than that. Look at what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. This is the great love of God. He acts. This is the love of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, contemplating the horror of the cross, which will mean not only physical death, but spiritual punishment in my place and yours for our sins. And Jesus, we're told, sweating as if it were great drops of blood, and we're told in agony goes to the cross anyway. If feelings had ruled the day, love would not have been shed on that cross If feelings had ruled the day, love would not have won. If feelings had ruled the day, Jesus would not have died. He would not have been subjected, not have subjected himself to that mockery of a trial, that brutal beating, that spit, those fists, those feet, those whips, ultimately the cross and the grave. He wouldn't have put up with it because, candidly, he didn't feel like it. And if we are to keep love first, we have to master this simple idea of knowing the pain of emotions that don't feel like it and knowing the deadness of it and the dullness of it and loving and obeying anyway. Here's how Jesus explained it in John 14. He said, if you love me, you will. Anybody know the rest of this? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Even when you don't feel like it. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. The emphasis is on action. It's on attitudes. It's on choices. 1 Corinthians 13. Would you read it with me? It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, 
hopes all things, endures all things. Let me take you back to the beginning of this passage. Here's a simple measure of how you are, how much you actually love Jesus and others this morning. You can just put your name where it says love, and that's the measure of your love. Because if you are a loving person, if you really love Jesus, the trials of this life and the suffering that comes with it, and the terrible tempest of emotions that overtake all of us, including me, Paul says in all of that, you will be patient and kind. You will not envy or boast. In other words, you won't make it about yourself. This one's tough. You will not be arrogant or rude. This one's hard on me. You will not insist on your own way. Boy, do I love my way. You will not be irritable or resentful. You will not rejoice at wrongdoing. Instead, you will rejoice with the truth. This is Jesus. This is also His disciples who love Him who are striving, who are struggling and crying and failing, but trying to love Him. Jesus and His disciples will bear all things. We will believe all things. We will keep hope in all things. We will endure all things. Why? Because great forgiveness leads to great love. So let me just ask you, with all that life has dealt you, all the disappointment, all the pain, all just the dry, day-to-day, mundane nature of life. Have you become a little bit like me? Has it just become all too familiar? Has it become more of a good habit instead of a loving relationship? You know, good habits are powerful, but they're no substitute for love. Keeping a good routine, keeping up good discipline, wonderful, beautiful trait will not sustain a marriage for a lifetime. There's no way to raise a child. There's no way to treat a friend. What sustains relationships above all things is love. And you have been greatly forgiven. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you are completely, absolutely, and greatly forgiven. And what He invites you to do in return is not to repay Him, but to love Him. And if you're not sure of His love, I'm telling you the gospel, the good news one more time. He did all this that I've been describing to you in your place before you were looking for Him, before you had the wisdom to ask Him, before you knew your need of Him. He was doing all this for you so that you will do what this woman did. You will simply trust Him, and in return, you receive His forgiveness. And He says to you, your sins are forgiven. Go home in peace. Can we pray together about it? Can I just ask you, Christian, if you know for certain that you are a disciple of Jesus, can I just ask you how much you actually love Him and where it shows up in your actions? Professing it from the lips out is easy. That was Simon's trouble. He said it with the lips and his heart was nowhere near Jesus. I don't hear a word that the woman says but it's so obvious that she loves him. Are you a little closer to me in my bad condition when I, my love has grown cold, grown weaker? It's never static. It's never stationary. You either love him more or you love him less day by day. How's it going, Christian? 
Talk to him about it. If your own love has grown cold, talk to him about it. Ask his forgiveness. Give him your heart. Give him your turbulent emotions. Give him all of that. And ask him to help you love him again. And if you don't know him, if you're not absolutely certain that you're Jesus' disciple, can I invite you in his name to trust him? It's the most painful thing you'll ever do spiritually to give up on yourself and your self-righteousness and say, Jesus, I cannot save myself. Save me instead. Nineteen people in Mexico did just that, and man, it was a battle. It's always a battle. It might be a battle for you this morning. Can I invite you in the name of Jesus to win that battle and to throw yourself on his mercy? To picture yourself there, humble before him, not sitting in judgment, but sitting at his feet in gratitude, saying, Jesus, please forgive me. And he will. He'll send you home in peace with your sins forgiven. If you do that this morning, simply turn to him in prayer right now and say, Jesus, I understand. I cannot save myself. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. Please save me. Give me a heart for you to love you and to walk with you and to do what you ask. And if you do that this morning or you have questions or you have doubts, as so many of you do and you're kind enough to share them with me, please take a moment, fill out the card and let us know what you've decided or what you're working on, what you're questioning, and let's see what Jesus will do. Father, you're so good to give us your son, and Jesus, you are magnificent, wonderful, perfect, so filled with love to expose self-righteousness and show us its deadness and to welcome anyone, Lord, people who are notoriously bad and who know it and feel far from you. You welcome all of us, the self-righteous and the self-condemned. You welcome us all, if only we will turn from sin and turn to you. So I pray for those who are struggling, maybe as people in that crowd in Mexico did, who are struggling right now, whether to trust you and become your disciple, give them grace at this moment to turn to you in prayer and ask you to be the Savior and the boss of their lives. And Lord, let this church be filled with disciples who genuinely love you who are not building a life to their own satisfaction, but living a life for your glory in gratitude, in love for how much you have forgiven us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.